This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Events happened in my hometown that enabled a serial killer. I think a lot of people I know were caught up in it. I spoke to one of the good old boy detectives. I said, did it ever occur to you that you might have a serial killer? He's like, mister, this was 1987. I'm not sure I'd even heard the term serial killer. Our minds just didn't work that way. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Maggie and I, my partner and I, looked at each other and said, do you remember a Danny Corwin? You know, by his age, he should be like two years ahead of us. Brian Burrow is a New York Times bestselling author and a reporter for Vanity Fair. This is a story about a man who murdered three women in the 1970s and 80s in Texas. But it's also about the women, those who died and those who survived. And it all started when someone told Brian about a serial killer at his old high school. Maggie and I graduated from Temple High in 1979, and he would have graduated had he lasted in like 77. He would have been two years ahead of us. Neither one of us, it rang no bells, and there was no connection to our hometown other than he had gone to school there. So I forgot about it. Maggie didn't. She did some digging. And at one point, about a month later, she came into my office and said, I think Danny Corwin attacked girls at our high school, and it was covered up. I said, now that's the story I would do. And he did this while you were in school? My family moved to Temple, Texas in 1971. It was after the Vietnam War. The area was growing massively. Danny Corwin's family moved there the year before. Very religious family. They went to First Presbyterian downtown. There were four of them. Danny was the second of four. What happened with Danny is, I wouldn't say he was a troubled young man. I would say he was... From an adult's viewpoint, he was almost overly eager to please. He was just the perfect kid, they thought. Other kids thought he was creepy, that he stared. He seemed even more than most junior high boys uh, preoccupied with sex. Later, there would be stories that he killed his sister's cat. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the on the checklist of what makes a serial killer, yes. cer- certainly, you know, mutilation or murder of animals is one of it. It's not a, it's not a definite. This all happened at a, a time where the science, the appreciation of not only serial killers, but uh, emotional challenges. This was rural Texas in the 1970s and into the 1980s. This was not Sigmund Freud's hometown, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) You know, these were... Sorry, everyone in Temple. But anyway, Danny's criminal story begins, you know, on one night, and this young woman, I name her in the story, I'm going to just choose not to name her right now, but let's just call her Kathy, was 13 or 14 years old, babysitting an infant girl in a ranch house in the Western Hills section of Temple, a newer section where a lot of... uh, 
the newer families moved because people were always moving in. Danny lived next door. She was tossing a ball with the inf- in the front yard. At some point, the parents left, put the kid to bed. It it's nightfall. This is in the spring. She's watching a movie. You know, it's the classic. You know, every every slasher movie you've ever seen is exactly like this. It's like a setup for Scream. At one point, she goes back to check on on the the little girl, and she notices. Um, that a sliding door in a in the in the living room is is ajar. She closes it, thinks nothing of it, and then locks it. Later, she's watching the movie and she hears a noise in the back of the house. She goes to this darkened, tiny little hallway. This is a three bedroom ranch, and out of nowhere, a, a naked teenager leaps out of the master bedroom with a knife. Classic hand across her mouth, knife to the neck. If you scream, I'll kill you. Takes her in, uh, takes off her clothes, rapes her. When it's done, she goes into the master bathroom to put her clothes back on. And she's doing that, trying to comprehend all that's just happened. And there's a soft knock at the door. And she's like, well, I can't keep him out. I mean, he crashed the door down. I got to. So she opens it. He says, I'm sorry. I think you have my (sighs) T-shirt. So he takes his T-shirt and turns to leave. And before he leaves, he says, you don't know me. I live on the other side of town and leaves. And she didn't get a good look at him. In fact, months later, Danny was investigated, but he passed a, a, a lie detector test and so was not prosecuted. Well, and now we know that lie detectors aren't reliable. There's a reason why they aren't allowed in court. I mean, even your medication that you're on can change the results. You know, it was classic small town, small town cops that really just couldn't prove it. So everything goes back to normal. He's from a respected family, religious family. Oh, yeah. This is this is not some skeezy kid from the wrong side of tracks, if you will. Not because those people would be inclined to do that, but because those people would incline to be uh, more suspected by small-town cops. Danny was upper middle class. His father uh, had, a, had a job in a, as a supervisor in a local factory. In the summer of 74, his family begins to encounter serious problems. They lost their house. They end up living in a motor home. During all this, Danny transfers to high school. He graduates from Bonham Junior High, where he was with, with, with us. He was in eighth grade, but we were in sixth. And later, we know that he had not felt like he fit in at the high school, that it was big. The kids weren't nice to him. They didn't talk to him. You talked to a lot of his you know, classmates, they'll tell you, well, no, we didn't really get along with him. He was quiet and creepy, and he would sit in English class and cut his nails with a hunting knife. Um, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. The thing about Danny that you have to remember is he had what they call a flat affect, meaning he kind of had a a blank face. If he stared at you, he just stared. He didn't smile a lot. He didn't laugh. He didn't show anger. He was pretty much just quiet and last day of school of 1975, a girl named Brenda Evans leaves school early that afternoon on an errand. She gets a pass. She goes out to the parking lot to get in her car, huge parking lot. I parked in this lot for years myself. And Danny Corwin is sitting on a car next to hers. And she says, hi, Daniel. He mumbled something. She gets in the car, uh, driver's side door is still open. And suddenly Danny is pushing his way into her seat, takes the keys He has a knife. He says, you know, don't say anything or I'll stab you. And she's just like stunned. She kind of knows him. She's been in class with him for three years since the Corwins came to town. Danny wheels her car out of the parking lot and up 31st, which was right along Interstate 35 there in Temple, goes, drives down to the end of it about a mile down, crosses over 
I-35 and is suddenly in kind of a semi-rural area. There's a long rape. She fights back. She kicks him in the crotch at one point. And then when it's done, he attempts to force her into the trunk of her car. There's some problem with the trunk. It won't open. They grapple and fight. And Danny ends up on top of her, straddling her with his knees over her shoulders. She can't move. And that's when he takes out the knife. He, he drives the knife into her chest, slowly. And then he slits her throat. One of the things when writing true crime is, especially when it deals with uh, crimes against women, especially when it deals with sexual violence, how much detail do you include? How, right. how much is prurient? How much is an invasion of privacy? Especially when you're a male writer. Oh, oh, no kidding. So now he's escalated. He watches her, looks, looks at her for, let's say, a minute, then leaves in the car, nearly runs her over. And the amazing thing is Brenda Evans wasn't dead. Later, she would say that it was the strap of her bra, which she had just re-put on, that the, the clasp had been underneath the knife. The cutting of her throat didn't actually hit the juggler. It was just a stunning amount of blood. But you've got this 15-year-old girl, incredibly brave and resilient young woman, and it's, you know, stumbles naked out of this granite pit up onto a rural road, and a driver going by sees her, takes her to the Gulf Station at the interstate, and, you know, she lived. And this is before cell phones. So it's incredible that she didn't bleed out or, or something. There's just no reason for that, that woman to be alive. She's still alive. When you finally reach out to her... She didn't respond. And you said, I'm Brian Burrow. I, I well, went to high school. She knew who I was, and I told her what I was doing, and she didn't respond. That wasn't enough for me because I was concerned. That, I mean, you want to do the right thing here. You want to explain w- what you're doing. Um, but luckily, the, the officers of her class knew her and kind of uh, carried messages to her. And the message I got back was she chooses not to participate. And the members of her class, as would become apparent, have for 40 years been very protective of Brenda. As the president of the class told me, afterwards, we kind of got together and said, this is just not something we're ever going to talk about. And we never really have. It was not covered up officially. Danny was arrested later that day in a car chase by the tiny Temple Airport. A cop who had gone to find him with his, his mother was in the car with the cop, uh, went in and chased him down, arrested him. Danny's church got involved. The First Presbyterian Church, leaders at the church, uh, including the minister, and some of the, the major people of the, in, in town, including the mayor and the newspaper publisher, had extensive internal debates about what to do about Danny. And one half of the congregation felt that he should just let justice do what it, what it should. The other half, led by the minister, thought that they should intercede with the DA and say, this was a good kid. This is a good family. This just can't, this can't have happened. And of course, the dark side of that, what happens, and this is in the weeks and months after the attack on Brenda, is that rumors about Brenda began to make the rounds. She was a loose girl, a fast girl, all of which is a bunch of bullshit, but was very much the type of thing that you might hear in a small town back before society became so much more knowledgeable about this type of talk, how it shouldn't be admissible. Well, back then, it was not only the natural type of gossip, but it was admissible. It was um, a, a real concern. So was this boys will be boys? Is that kind of what this no, was? No, no. Okay. It was this is a good boy, a good religious boy. 
Who, what, just went astray temporarily? He must have been led on. He must have just gone sex crazy. That you know, he was a virgin. We're sure she lured him into it, and he just went—he just went crazy and panicked or something. It was just the bad day defense. This is a theme in pretty much everything I've ever written. The person who appears one way, sort of the Jekyll and Hyde, and then you know something happens. So that is a defense in this case. Other than a rape allegation, this was a kid who'd never been in trouble. The the church intervenes with the DA. And basically goes in and says he he should be given probation and treatment. And the the DA is saying, you understand, this is this is aggravated rape. An attempted murder. Yes. So while the DA can just dismiss this, well, tough. I mean, he doesn't have to listen to the church. The problem is that tips off the fact that the defense in any type of trial is going to come after Brenda's reputation. And they're going to put Brenda on trial, which you could do in rural Texas in 1976. And on the eve of trial, nine months later, early 1976, the DA, who was still alive and a wonderful gentleman with a wonderful memory, had to sit down with Brenda and her father, who's very prominent, former former head of the Temple School Board, and said, it's my duty to tell you that this could get rough, that the other side has said they're going to go after your reputation, say this was all your fault, yada, yada, yada. The father basically said, I can't put my daughter through that. I will not have her essentially raped the second time. And he said, make a deal. They made a deal. Ultimately, instead of being life without parole, Danny got 40 years with chance of parole. And you may be saying, 40 years, what's the big difference? Well, there's a big difference because in those days, the Texas prisons were very overcrowded. Danny was sent to a a juvenile facility uh, down around Huntsville in southeast Texas. And he's got 40 years, but the fact is he could easily have gotten out in 10 or 15 years. With good behavior. Yeah. Well, Danny was one of the best behaved inmates in the history of that institution. I got lucky and found out a number of his uh, teachers. Danny worked on all the guards' cars. He was the go-to mechanic. Everyone loved him. He he was an artist, and he his art hung all over the all over the prison. Initially, he was given a psychiatric evaluation. He was put on some meds, anti-schizophrenic stuff. Danny didn't like being doped up. He got off the meds. They never put him back on. So I, I circle back to he was given 40 years. He might have served 10 or 15. He served six. Did he show signs of schizophrenia? No. So was it just, this is the best we can do? This is the only medicine that, that could be helpful? As far as I can tell, let's just say the status of Texas prison medicine in 1974 was the type of thing that can really piss you off. And knowledge of mental health issues, obviously. The thing with Danny is he he acted like a quiet kid with good manners. That's a problem in terms of diagnosis, especially if you're not living in a world of relatively sophisticated psychologists. It was what you would just call rudimentary. Subject seems well-balanced and very, very, very nice. Uh, You know, emotionally undeveloped is what they would call him because he was young. He was strangely dependent on his parents and their approval. I mean, that seemed to mean everything to him. He he was let out of prison in the mid-'80s, like like 84. He came back to our hometown. Danny went back to church. He went back to First Presbyterian. He went back to living with his with his family. The Corwin's family was always very tight with another family in town. They would go to Lake Belton together. They would go to square dances. They would do a lot of stuff together as families. And the younger daughter there, we'll call her Becky, 
Danny babysat for her. She idolized Danny. She was, what, three or four years younger than he was. She would go down there with other members of the extended, the two families, to visit Danny every month, sometimes every week when he was in prison. And when he caught out, Becky had always fantasized about marrying Danny. All four parents thought this was a fabulous idea. Oh, my gosh. Danny and Becky become a thing, like overnight become a thing. Is this his first yeah. legitimate relationship? Yeah. He's like 26. Uh, and she's like, she's in college. So she's like 21, 22. They have a pretty, dark, you know, a pretty good relationship over, let's say, a six to nine month period in the mid-1980s. They begin having sex. The first problem really is when Danny can't um, perform, culminate. Oh. And she asked him what the problem is. She'd only been with a couple of people, and so she didn't really know, and there was no good. As she said to me, Danny said to me, oh, a lot of guys have this. It's just, we just don't, we just don't do that. Uh, she said, you know, what was I going to do, go on Google? Ask my mom? You know, she was a 21-year-old girl and at a Baptist school. It was just not—so she thought that was okay. Uh, the high point of their relationship was Danny applied to Texas A&M University and got in. And the mental health people, the probation people all said, he's good to go. And so after about a year back in Temple, they were still an item. Becky went down to University of Texas— for graduate school, and Danny went to Texas A&M, and they would see each other uh, all weekends. And Danny moved with a buddy down to Madisonville because it was cheap. His friend was going to be a prison guard down there, of all things, and he knew the guards, he knew guys. So there he is living in this little town, Madisonville, Texas. And as you would expect, because we're talking about true crime, during all this, an older woman, 75 years old, I want to say, went out for a morning walk with her dog and disappeared. She was found uh, several days after a multi-county, everybody out with dogs and planes and helicopters, and they ultimately found her, you know, cut, cut up, uh, pre raped. It was pretty bad. No suspects. Danny's doing great, except he and Becky are having problems. She's noticed that he's not always truthful with her. He lies about a bad check, little stuff like that. And, of course, she's trying to gauge him as a potential husband. And so he just wasn't opening up. He, he didn't seem to be capable of having this type of adult relationship. So they began to, to drift apart, as one would expect. In fact, he's flunked out of A&M. He wasn't even going to class. He tells nobody. He doesn't tell his bosses. He doesn't tell Becky. He doesn't tell his parents, who he continues to visit many weekends. He moves into the town of Huntsville. He moves to a little rental house with a buddy within four blocks of the, of the main prison. I mean, kind of amazing. He still disappears every Tuesday and Thursday to go to school, and everybody knows now that he wasn't. We don't really know what he was doing. What I suspect he was doing was he was driving around looking for women. On the hunt. Yeah, that's later the type of thing that he suggested. Danny's life goes quiet for a while, not a lot going on. That fall, a couple of things happen. Deborah Irwin was working at a um, an eyeglasses boutique on the south side of Huntsville. Danny and his bosses had just installed all the cabinets in this place. On a Friday afternoon that fall, she suddenly bursts into the office next door, and she says there's a man with a gun outside. And the other young woman goes, oh, my God, and hides under a desk. Deborah went back into the office, and it was the last time she was ever seen. They found her body two days later, 
raped and stabbed to death in a rural area outside Huntsville. No suspects, no eyewitnesses, no nothing at first. Are they connecting this at all at this point to the 75-year-old woman? Different county, nine months ago. No computerized system, obviously, to plug in. The next day, the, the Huntsville police did do some of the work that you're supposed to do. And so they realized people were working at the shop, and so they called Danny's boss, this older gentleman, now a retired farmer down in Huntsville named Ben, Ben Pruitt. And Ben said, well, I, I should tell you, the kid who works with me uh, has some type of, of rape or sexual assault conviction where he grew up up in Central Texas. You should check about that. And so they do. They get Danny's record, and they call Ben Pruitt Monday morning. They say, would you bring this kid in? And so Ben Pruitt brings Danny very nicely behaved, flat affect Danny into the Huntsville Police Department where there are two or three Huntsville police officers and a detective and a Texas Ranger. And I talked to one of the senior people who was in the room that day along with Ben Pruitt. And basically, Danny fooled him. The senior detective that I spoke to said there was just no sense that this kid could have done it. He was just so nice. There was no vibe. He didn't seem at all, wasn't even upset that he, he'd been brought in. There was no sense of nervousness. And there was no sense of anything you'd expect to see if we had the guy. And so Danny walked. Danny walked. They focused on an ex-husband. When the ex-husband had an alibi, I wouldn't say they forgot about it. But look, this was a, this was a town of 32,000 people. I want to say they had four detectives and 32 cops. As one of them told me, look, crime didn't just stop. There were break-ins and stuff. You know, we were still busy. And so I guess it's what makes what happened after that all the more upsetting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. On Halloween, a woman named Debbie, she worked at AT&T in a clerical thing, lived in a mobile home, divorced with a four-year-old. I want to say this is 87, maybe 86. They had been in Houston at a beauty pageant. When they got home that night, the girl wanted to go to another uh, beauty pageant at the county fair that night where there was a Halloween festival of some type. So they decided they would do that. They did that. Afterwards, on the way home, they stopped at an open-air car wash, one of these brick things you see in Texas where there's like five bays where you get a big hose of water and some soap and you can wash your car. About 15 minutes after they pulled up, three women burst into the sheriff's office, which was barely a mile up the road, saying, there's a woman dead. There's a woman dead at the car wash. There was a guy there, detective, and he is on the scene. He had been out trick-or-treating. He had just dropped by to see if, how things were going that night. He's on the scene with his wife and two small kids in a big Ford 150, don't you know? Pulls into the car wash a minute later. And this is a scene he's never forgotten, and I'm telling you, I'm not sure I'll ever forget. There's a car, you know, with a, a hose still firing water on the ground in one of these bays. And as he walks up to it, he sees a, a fallen body of a woman. Clearly, he can see blood. 
And then there's a car there. It's a large, older white Cadillac. And he sees movement in the car. And he looks in the car and he realizes there's a child, appears to be four or five years old, wearing something red, who has just popped the locks, locked all of them, and is hiding down the car. And he tries to get the child's attention. Honey, I'm, I'm, a police, I'm a police officer. I'm here to help. I'm here to help mommy. And it takes a moment. But eventually one of the doors opens and the girl in the red dress runs out and clasps him around the knees and is saying, the bad man killed mommy. The bad man killed mommy. She's not wearing a red dress. She's wearing a white, girly dress that's covered with blood. And he checks her and he checks her and he realizes it's not the child's blood. It's clearly her mother's blood. The only thing the child can say is that she believes that the bad man was driving a pickup and she thought a brown pickup. Danny does not get caught. He is not suspected, except by his boss, Ben Pruitt. Ben noticed the Monday after that attack, he came into the office, the, the, the warehouse where they made cabinetry with a big bandage across his, his hand. And Ben asked him what had happened. And he said he'd cut his hand opening a thing of cocoa, whatever. Danny was still free. A few months go by. He continues life as it had been, apparently starts dating a, a, a new girl. The girlfriend leaves him or he breaks up with the girlfriend? It just kind of died. And then the following spring, there's a young woman at Texas A&M, an undergraduate, a sophomore named, we'll call her Wendy. And one day around noon on a Thursday that spring, she went out to Kyle Field, the big football stadium, and she was going to go uh, ride her horse. And she got into her pickup. And when she turned around, the door was still open. And there was Danny standing at the door with a knife, which he quickly put to her face. She scrambled across, tried to escape. He subdued her and actually managed to tie her to the seatbelts so that she couldn't get away. Uh, she screamed, but he had the, he had the windows closed and he quickly drove out of this cavernous parking lot, goes east out of College Station. And she keeps asking him, what are you doing? What are you doing? What? And he just said, he just kept saying, I just need your car. I just need your car. If you'll be, if you'll be quiet, this will all be fine. I'm just going to let you off in a, in a rural area where it'll take you some time to go tell everybody what's happening. So they actually end up at a, a new park being built kind of out of the, uh, out of the woods. On the east side of Bryan College Station, there's a trail off into the woods. He tells her to get out, and he takes her down this trail, takes her into the woods, finds a place, begins to rape her. They're interrupted by some large trucks going by on the road, and it's so close that it rattles him. So he takes her more deeply into the woods, finishes raping her, ties her to a tree. She's naked. She keeps saying, you don't have to do this. You, don't, you said you weren't going to hurt me. You can just go. You can just go. At that point, she feels the knife come around her throat, and he slices her throat. And then leaves 12 years later. It's the exact same thing. He slit a woman's throat. She's there with practically no clothes on. She realizes she's still alive. She slumps to the ground. She's still alive. She manages to, to untie the knots and bring her hands to her throat where she feels like she's staunching the bleeding, right? But she's in the woods in a park. She, she kind of staggers down this path, retracing her steps back to the parking lot. The only way she knows out of it, she comes down this path. And Danny's still in the parking lot sitting behind the wheel of her. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. I have to get out of here. I could bleed to death. Luckily, he leaves in two or three minutes. So she does she hide? Just hid behind a tree. Oh, my gosh. The moment he leaves, staggers out uh, into this gravel parking lot and up the little rise to the blacktop. And it's there she collapses. And within two minutes, a county employee going by in a county truck sees her, stops, 
gets out, goes up to her, says, honey, honey, I'll have police here in a minute. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. They brought Wendy to the hospital there in Bryan College Station. They stabilize her. She can't talk. And they, they interview her by writing writing notes, but they, they don't have anything. But it's pretty clear she's indicating she knows the face. They bring this woman in who is a sketch artist, maybe the first sketch artist in Texas. I went out to her house, and she brought out a manila folder with her interview notes from, what, 32 years ago? She said, I've never forgotten it because it was the most, most incredible cases. How often do you try to make a sketch while paired with a victim who cannot talk. So Karen interviewed Wendy. Just question after question after question. Would draw a face, would draw a shirt. Would, if, if, you know, would she nod? Would she shake her head? And, and, and Wendy was alert and invigorous and pissed. She wanted this guy caught. So these two strong women put together picture that when circulated the next day is instantly recognizable to the entire world as Danny Corwin. His old prison guards phoned it in. His boss, Ben Pruitt, the state police, called Ben and say, we think your, your boy Danny Corwin did it. And there then ensues this long, multi-day thing in which the state police and the local police have to pair up, have to get all their warrants and their arrest warrants and everything put together. A judge says a drawing isn't enough, so they have to go back into Wendy's truck once again for fingerprints, and they finally find a fingerprint. Apparently, Danny knew enough to scrub it down. By that point, a week after, the, you know, the police have been following him, watching him from work, following him to his home. Ren Pruitt and his partner have to work with him every day, knowing they're working with the serial killer. But he's still same old Danny, nice as possible, no sense of anything weird. And they've got like 40 cops. They, they surround this rental house. And two of them take an old beater car, and they back it into Danny's car in the driveway of his little rental home, hoping that he will then come outside. They need him to come outside. They don't want anything that, where they would end up in some, any type of SWAT situation. He comes out, and they tackle him and rag him to the ground and say, you know, under arrest. Is he surprised? What's his reaction? You never know with Danny. He's not exactly going to tell you what's on his mind. He's just blank. He doesn't fight the charge. He was ultimately declared a serial killer legally, makes a deal, and gets life without parole for the attack on Wendy. But there's three unsolved murders around the same area, and Danny won't talk. There's no DNA testing at this point. No, come on. <laughs> there's nothing. Common sense says this must be the doer for at least the two in Huntsville. And they think maybe the older woman, Alice Martin, up in Madisonville, Maybe they just don't know. So Danny is sentenced to prison. He gets life. And the police obviously are tremendously frustrated that they can't solve these other cases. One of the older rangers at one point says, you know, calm down. One day he's going to wake up and he's going to want to tell his story. So Danny goes into prison at the Ennis unit. On that first day, you go to a guy who screens you. Well, this guy saw Danny coming and realized the speculation from the local newspapers that this guy was, was a suspect in, in these murders. And Leroy is a little bit of a fan of murder, she wrote, if you will. And he makes Danny the 15th and last guy of the day so that he can have the whole end of his day to talk to Danny. Danny comes in, and the classic Danny mumbles, no, I'm fine. It's all good whatever you want. And Leroy, at one point, then says, okay, kind of puts down his pencil and says, so, you were there at the vision exchange that day, right? The eyeglasses boutique. No, no, I, I wasn't there. 
oh, come on, you were there. You must have done this. Come on, man. You can tell me. And presses him in a semi-playful way about the murder of this woman, Deborah Irwin. Why did she say to anger you? Did she dress provocatively? And Danny says three words, I don't know, which is night and day from I didn't do it. It's not a denial. It's not a denial. By the following week, he confesses to all of them. He walks them through all the attacks. Why? I don't understand why. I mean, is this just like a, a release or a weight off his shoulders? I mean, what? We can only speculate. He is monumentally frustrating as a defendant because you want to understand him. And yet Danny doesn't really communicate his motivations. He just does things. Maybe he doesn't know. Well, I think that's what happened. Because in the end, if you look at the t- totality of the the statements that he gave to psychologists and police during and after these three convictions, as well as his earlier conviction, the most that he ever says is that he would feel a pressure in his head and then a fog would descend and then he wouldn't remember very much until it was over. And that's about all he said. Sounds like bullshit. I called bullshit in the article. Danny goes to death row in Huntsville in the late 80s. He's only there maybe three, four, five years. It's a big deal back in Temple. So now everybody gets it. Oh, yeah. Back in Temple, everybody's like, oh, crap. There's a lot of people that apologize to a lot of people. A few years after Danny goes to death row, two women come to interview him. One of the dead women's sisters and Alice Martin's granddaughter. And they want answers because they don't know. There was no trial. There was no statement in which he described even what happened. He confessed. He's the guilty guy. He's on death row. I mean, the parents were absolutely clueless. We always thought he was the nicest boy. Yes, he wet his bed until he was 15, but we just thought it was because he was a sound sleeper. I mean, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Some of the things that we now know that might tip off progressive parents today did not tip off people in Temple, Texas in 1975. So these two women come to interview Danny, and and these women press Danny for better part of three hours. They do the requisite, you've ruined our lives, here's how you changed our lives. But then they want answers. They want to know what happened. He's now almost 40, and he looks like kind of a pouchy, a little bit overweight, well-groomed, small-town insurance agent. He just looks like some quiet guy in your hometown. And he basically insists on two things. He doesn't remember details of the murders, and he doesn't have a clue why he did this. No clue. He just would get kind of foggy, and then things would happen, and then he'd forget. I call bullshit on this because there was a single medical professional or psychiatrist who said he had interviewed a Daniel. Danny was exactly what you would expect, that he was the victim or that he acted after uh, violent sexual fantasies. That would seem self-evident, you know, now, given all we understand. But back then, the whole concept of a serial killer was just becoming popularized, really beginning in the 80s. And the idea that they were, by and large, fueled by violent sexual fantasy was still a new concept. I clearly believe that that's what Danny was fueled by. That's what was going on here. But Danny was just telling these women he just couldn't remember. And this is where I knew he was lying. He said that he started doing all this after he'd been raped in jail as a teenager. And I knew that, in fact, he had been raped in jail as a teenager by uh, an older man after the Brenda Evans thing. Danny says it was before the two temple attacks. And that's why he did the temple attacks and became a serial killer. And I'm like... Dude, if you're lying about this, you're lying about everything. It's, it was a naked plea for sympathy from these women. He wanted their this creepy way in this sympathy. Well, it's manipulation. 
No kidding. So Danny, five years later, was taken into the death chamber in Huntsville. The families were allowed into these tiny, cramped viewing rooms to watch as needles were put into his arm. He made this weird kind of rambling final statement, about eight minutes long, I want to say. Eight minutes? You know, he went on for a while and then memorably uh, thanked the two women, the granddaughter and the sister, who had come to interview for allowing me to be part of your lives. Just bizarro. Well, obviously self-serving. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. And so Danny Corwin died. Not a lot of news coverage. The crimes he was killed for were now 11, 12 years old. And he was by and large forgotten. I could see someone saying, what right do you have to dredge up 40-year-old awful attacks How do you, as a journalist, explain why this is important, why dredging this up is important? Everybody understood what had happened, that there was a bad seed who fooled everybody. I really didn't get that pushback, the pushback that I expected. Why are you doing this? And you're trustworthy. I mean, you know, I think it's important for a journalist to come in, you know, with a reputation that they have treated people fairly in the past. Where the rubber met the road on this argument was with Becky, the girlfriend who is still in the area, is a successful professional, happy, vivacious mom, happily married, all the things you'd want to say. When I ultimately sat down with her, she said, you have to understand my kids don't know about this. Wow. I told my husband, our family friends don't know about this. Nobody knows about this and nobody remembers him. I went to Becky and I said, look, I'm so, so sorry. I'm sorry that this is an intrusion in your life. Let me explain you what I'm doing. I was prepared to be apologetic. And after barely 15 minutes, she started to get angry about what had happened. She was like, I watch Netflix. And they do three-part documentary series about crimes that weren't as bad as what Danny Corwin did. And you know who remembers Danny Corwin and what he did to this town? Nobody. You know who remembers those girls that he killed? Nobody. And she became my biggest supporter. And she told me the entire story. Wow. There were those who believed in law enforcement that his breakup was what led to the killings. To me, that's just rank speculation. I'm not sure I even— And and also that's blaming her in some way, Becky. No kidding. I mean, this is not her fault. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. To me, Becky was the most wide open uh, in terms of awareness of his problems. But there's a long stretch from being aware that a guy has some sexual dysfunction and emotional dysfunction to thinking, oh, he's a murderer. Right. When I got involved, from the DA to the class president, there was a lot of people said it's it's been too long. People need to know what happened here to make sure this type of thing never happens again. One thing I want to tell you that I like that you do is frequently when I read true crime or listen to different networks that do true crime, when a woman is found dead and is the victim or the survivor, almost always the first description of her is beautiful. Number one, as if it's more tragic for an attractive person to die. But number two, that is the first adjective that people tend to use when describing a woman. And you never did that. In this whole interview, you've never described any of these victims or the survivors as, you know, attractive or beautiful. But you're one of the few, honestly, who I think doesn't do that. That's one cliche I haven't fallen into. That's good to know. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I got lucky. Actually, give myself some credit. I was smart in that um, before circulating the article or turning it in, I had Maggie and two other women I respect look at it. I did not describe the rapes. The violence is is very vivid and very, very difficult. But... 
the sexual component of it, I definitely did not go into detail about. What are the things that you've taken away that are the main sort of broad strokes that you want people to know about why you did this? I write stories for myself. I write them because they interest me. And this was a personal thing. And I, I got angry about it. I don't justify my articles to myself. If it interests me frequently, that's enough. At times, I feel compelled to represent some type of motivation to try to come up with some reason for this. But that's frankly not why I did this. I did this because I felt compelled to. And that's really it. On the next episode of Wicked Words. Out of all the serial killers you're going to meet, according to the experts, torso killers are the worst. The world needed to know how serial killer cases are really investigated and not on television. They're way more complicated. They're way more screwed up. They're way more tragic. And they're not as transparent. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 